This is Radiant Voices Media. guys and welcome to the second episode during today's episode we are going to go back to our hometown or to my hometown of new westminster british columbia and this is the story of the hollywood hospital for more than 50 years the site of the now known world city center of new westminster bc was the hollywood hospital this was bc's most famous and notorious private hospitals of its time It was a place that attracted high-profile guests like Andy Williams and Cary Grant. First founded in 1919, it was first known as the Hollywood Sanitarium, which was a private hospital for the treatment of alcoholics and patients with other addictions. It was known and was recognized for its innovative, if not unusual, treatments, approaches, including doing away with straitjackets and introducing an open-door policy for patients. In 1956, the unorthodox methods at Hollywood Hospital took an even sharper turn with the arrival of two men, Dr. J. Ross McLean and Dr. Al Hubbard. This is when all the known reports examinations of LSD took place on patients with alcoholism and various other personality disorders. McLean and Hubbard supervised more than 6,000 acid trips, not just for alcoholism, but for anxiety disorders, depression, and marital discord. It was said that Hubbard's whole thing was disseminating LSD to influential people. That's what he was best known for, just going around spreading LSD all over North America. To him, it was like spreading the gospel, and he was quite the zealot about its benefits. Now, a lot of today's story revolves around Al Hubbard, so let's talk a little bit more about Al Cappy Hubbard, or Acid Al. And thank you to the website Past Tense Vancouver for posting the story all about Dr. Hubbard. Al Hubbard was a mysterious fellow. His life was certainly fascinating, even extraordinary. Inventor, spy, adventurer, sea captain, pilot doctor, snitch, and eccentric millionaire were all on his resume. But he was best known as the Johnny Appelstein of LSD. Born a poor Kentucky hillbilly, Hubbard first found fame in the Seattle in 1919 as a boy inventor of a coil contraption that according to the Post Intelligencer, generated electricity with no apparent power source. Al Hubbard's relationship with Vancouver probably began while working for millionaire George Refill's rum running operation in the 1920s. Hubbard operated a wireless shore-to-ship communications system out of a phony Seattle taxicab, allowing the rum fleet to stay one step ahead of the police and Coast Guard. He was eventually pinched for this, and after 18 months prisons, switched sides and began helping the U.S. government stem the flow of illicit booze. 
During World War II, Hubbard's talents were utilized to secretly transport American ships and planes into Canada to aid the British war efforts in the days before the U.S. officially entered the fray. Little is known about his work with the OSS during the war, but in September 1980, article in Vancouver Magazine, Ben Metaclaff claimed that Al Hubbard had once shown him photographs of himself accompanying the American-Canadian party into Port Radnium to pick up the first shipment of uranium for the Manhattan Project. Hubbard settled in Vancouver after the war and became filthy rich. He drove a Rolls Royce, bought a Gulf Island, and owned a big yacht and a small fleet of airplanes. His riches were apparently derived from a company called Marine Manufacturing, and perhaps from his role as a scientific director of the Uranium Corporation of BCLTD. Strengthening the theory that Hubbard continued his spy career with the CIA after the war. These endeavors seem to have been as sketchy as his espionage and criminal activities. For instance, the mailing address of the Uranium Corporation was 500 Alexander Street, a residential building originally built as a brothel and now a skid road roaming house, hardly an address benefiting an important sounding company or its millionaire director. In any case, Hubbard's wealth enabled him to pursue his true passion, turning people on to LSD. Al Hubbard became a doctor by purchasing a degree in biopsychology from a Tennessee diploma mill. In 1957, he teamed up with Dr. J. Ross McLean, who had recently taken over Hollywood Hospital, bringing us back to our story about Hollywood Hospital. The Hollywood Hospital carved out its niche by using LSD to treat alcoholism. The initial theory was that LSD would actually inhibit the rehab for alcoholism. Researchers instead found that alcoholics benefited from LSD, not by inducing rock bottom, but because the experience heightened their awareness of themselves and gave them insight into the nature of their problems. The acid room at the Hollywood Hospital was used for these treatments using LSD. The setting was considered very important in LSD therapy at the hospital. The room featured a state-of-art hi-fi system, a strobe light, and a print of Salvador Dali's crucifix. Now, there is a photo from J. Ross McLean in January 1965. Um, this room actually looks kind of normal. Like, it does not seem creepy at all. There's a coffee table, there's a couch, um, there's a rug and some plants. Like, it does not seem as creepy as you'd think. Um, you can find these photos all on the show's Instagram. I've posted them all there, so be sure to check them all out. But yeah, it does not seem creepy at all. In the late 1950s, psychedelic therapy came without virtually any of the social stigma it carries today. For starters, it was legal. Hubbard, the only licensed importer in Canada, obtained his acid directly from Sandoz, the Swiss company that had first manufactured it back in the 1940s. The drug had also yet to be become associated with the counterculture elements that would later lead uneasy governments to declare it illegal. The sessions were as clinical as possible under their circumstances. 
each one being preceded over by Hollywood hospital staff, including McLean, Hubbard, and a nurse. Notes were taken in the room and employees were on hand both to prepare patients before treatments and to discuss the experience with them in real life. Each participant in what was dubbed the experience was asked to draw up an autobiography including details of childhood, family, and sexual and religious experiences, as well as reasons for wanting to take part in this process. Now, there is no record that this was exactly how each session kind of went about. There is no record out there at all about this. Although there was some criticism and debate concerning methodology, LSD therapy provided an impressive remedy for 50 to 80% of people seeking treatment for alcoholism. Another interesting finding to come out of Hollywood Hospital was that while LSD failed to cure homosexuality, it was beneficial to homosexuals trying to cope in a heterosexual world. Here's a little statement that was reported all these years ago. Few homosexuals in our group have obtained a satisfactory heterosexual adjustment, yet many have derived marked benefits in terms of insight, acceptance roles, reduction of guilt, and associated psychosexual liabilities. The same report also noticed, or also noted, sorry, that LSD was attracted for non-therapeutic purposes. Here's the note. Although patients reported in this paper all had clearly identifiable personality or behavioral problems ranging from the mildly disturbed to the actually ill, a growing number of normals are seeking the benefits often derived from the psychedelic experience. For this group and some extent of our patients, the term therapy is perhaps not entirely appropriate. In 1957, a province reporter named Ben Metacleff arrived at Hollywood Hospital looking for missing inactioned SOCRID forestry minister Robert Somers. For Metacalf, coming to the Hollywood Hospital turned out to be the beginning of a long friendship with Al Hubbard. Metacalf, Metacalf, sorry, I, I do not know how to pronounce this name, returned to Hollywood Hospital in 1959 and dropped acid under Hubbard's supervision for a series of articles published in the province newspaper in the province newspaper in September 1959. Besides taking LSD himself for the assignment, Metacalf observed sessions of patients and interviewed test subjects. One Vancouver woman quit heroin after three and a half year addiction and others had given up alcohol. According to Metacalf, the treatment was, and I quote, the most dramatic experience made accessible to the human mind. By mid-1959, McLean and Hubbard were rich men. McLean has, had used his money to purchase Vancouver's iconic Casamia on Marine Drive, and Hubbard drove a two-toned Rolls Royce, owned a fleet of airplanes, and had a lab on one of the Gulf Islands all while being someone who purchases degree credentials from Taylor University, a degree mill that was little more than Chicago's post office. And when confronted on the subject, his response was characteristically glib. Hell, Ben, I never had a pair of shoes till I was 12 years old and left Kentucky. When would I find time to become what you call a real doctor? 
Despite his financial and medical success, the therapy conducted at Hollywood Hospital wasn't viewed favorably by the medical establishment. Vocal opponents included Vancouver General Hospital psychiatry head, Dr. James Feinhurst, and the BC Physicians College, which threatened to withdraw the hospital's subsides if it couldn't demonstrate the program's effectiveness. Feinhurst's goal of having Hollywood Hospital shut down wasn't even realized until 1975. By then, LSD's reputation had shifted from being a new pharmaceutical with exciting therapeutic possibilities to a street drug, corrupting our youth and driving them insane. Leading the crusade against LSD in Vancouver was Pat McGear, a UBC brain researcher and liberal MLA for Vancouver Point Grey. In 1967 speech to the legislator, McGeer demanded that university professors and schools teachers who advocated the use of drug be immediately fired. Contrary to the opinion of pseudo-experts, he said, LSD does not expand the mind but shrinks it and interferes with the chemical process of the brain. LSD is a universally terrifying drug and I am alarmed by its spread into Vancouver's high schools. 50 pounds of it is enough to produce mental illness in anybody in North America. This is how powerful it is. Pat McGear was the forefront and full-blown moral panic that resulted in the governmental outlawing LSD in 1967. McGear claimed that the new law had eliminated the problem, at least amongst high school students. I really believe that the popularization of LSD has passed its peak and with much more common sense attitude is going to prevail. He said, this attitude is just a recognition that this is a dangerous agent. Although Hollywood Hospital plodded along until its demise in 1975, the drug panic pretty much killed serious research into LSD by the end of the 60s. By the early 1970s, Hollywood Hospital had fallen on hard times. The new Westminster City Council tried unsuccessfully to shut it down in the spring of 1970. And around the same time, it ran into trouble with fire inspectors over the condition of its buildings. Without the psychedelic therapy as its flagship, the hospital introduced other things, including multivitamin injections. In December of 1974, the government announced that it would no longer continue providing bed subsides and in July of 1975, Hollywood Hospital closed its doors. Al Hubbard, meanwhile, left Hollywood Hospital because he disagreed with Dr. McLean, using LSD primarily as a money marker. Hubbard felt all along that it was a spiritual and therapeutic tool rather than a commodity, and therefore that it should be freely distributed to the right people. By 1980, Hubbard was living a remarkably different life from his Hollywood Hospital tenure, instead spending his days in an Arizona trailer park and working as a security guard. By then, he had blown through his fortune and that it was said that it was largely because he didn't believe in commercializing LSD at all. For him, it was more of a spiritual thing. McLean sold the property to developers and the Hollywood Hospital was torn down six months later and replaced by Westminster Mall. Apparently, the hospital's files were left in a man named Frank Odgkin's care before McLean passed away. However, very few have seen the files. This is quite possibly the reason why very little is actually known about the inner workings of Hollywood Hospital. 
All right, you guys, and that is the story of Hollywood Hospital and LSD. Now, this next story is called, I used to work at a haunted psychiatric hospital. It was found on the subreddit Ghost Stories by Bank Robber Kaz. For some background, I've been a behavioral health nurse for about 12 years, and my first job was at a freestanding mental health facility in the South. This facility is pretty uniquely constructed as it was originally a plantation owned by a wealthy Irishman who, Im who immigrated here sometime in the 1700s. The original plantation house is still there and is now used as a business office and the hospital itself was constructed to be attached to the house. If you explore, the campus there is a small graveyard with the original owner's tombstone as well as some other family members of his. Additionally, there is a sign that says something along the lines of, this is dedicated to the slaves that worked and died on this plantation. Anyways, one of the stories that has been passed down among the employees there for decades is that a young girl in the Irishman's family, one of his daughters or grandchildren, passed away on the plantation at a very young age. That her ghost still lingers around the house and the facility and that there are certain patient rooms that have an unusual amount of paranormal activity. One day I was walking past one of these rooms and in my peripheral, I saw a young girl who looked to be around nine or 10 years old sitting at the bed. She was wearing a colonial looking dress appropriate for the time period in which she was alive and looked directly at me in the eyes when I turned to look at her. I was incredibly startled and my mind raced for a few seconds, trying to convince myself that she wasn't there. I walked a few feet past the room, gathering my courage to go back and she disappeared from sight. She didn't have any qualities, nothing out of ordinary or strange. She literally just looked like a real person sitting there right in plain view. During my time there, I never heard of anyone else who saw her as clearly as I did. But every once in a while, one of my coworkers or a patient would experience something strange, like doors opening and slamming shut. I remember one patient in particular that ran out of his room, white as a sheet, and said that while he was lying in bed, his bedroom door slammed shut on its own. It was so loud, I heard it from the nurse's station myself. This patient was there for addiction and had no history of hallucinations whatsoever. All right, you guys, and the last story also found on the subreddit Ghost Stories by Momo52915 is titled, I lived in a haunted house for four years, and it was hell. I grew up in southern Pennsylvania, not far from Gettysburg. When I was eight years old, my parents decided to build a house on a vacant property surrounding by fields, and it was beautiful. I lived with both of my parents and my two older brothers who were 15 and 17 at the time. Though I grew up in the area, we only stayed in the house for about four years. My first night there was not what I expected it to be. I was laying there in bed and had closed my eyes. Right then, I hear a voice that sounded like a soft whisper about six inches away from my face, saying, help, over and over, just repeating the same word until I fell asleep. I tried my best to forget about it because I thought there was no way the house could be haunted. It was brand new, for God's sakes. 
about a month goes by and I'm sitting on my bed doing what I used to love doing most, which was read. I glanced up and looked at my doorway because I saw something out of the corner of my eye. At that moment, I had officially seen a full body ghost of what appeared to be a soldier from the 1800s, but he didn't see me. He was just walking by my room very slowly. I still remember every detail of his appearance 20 years later. He was covered in blood and looked like he had been shot or stabbed. This lasted for about five seconds. Still being creeped out, my curiosity got the best of me, and I walked out of my room and searched all around the house but found nothing unusual. About a week or two goes by and I'm in bed trying to fall asleep yet again only to be disturbed before I even had the chance to close my eyes by this voice that was very deep and masculine. I couldn't understand a word it was saying because it was speaking in a different language. It sounded annoyed and angry. It happened every night at the exact same time for two weeks before it suddenly stopped. After that, I had a night terror. I am absolutely terrified of spiders. I had woken up in the middle of the night. I could see what looked like a tarantula crawling on me in bed. I swear it was there. I definitely saw it. I was panicking. My dad came in the room to check on me, but everything was okay then. Before I could fall asleep, I heard that sound like two men laughing right next to my bed. At this point, I was getting used to fucked up shit happening. One summer, I stayed up late so I could watch Hannah Montana at midnight. One night, when the clock struck midnight, I heard my back door downstairs open. Then I would hear a woman say my name as if she was calling for me. I'd hear the door shut followed by footsteps. Then there would be silence. It happened every night for almost two months. It never failed. It didn't even bother me at that point. I knew it wasn't my mother because she worked 12-hour night shifts at the hospital every night. There were no other females around. But one night, it stopped altogether. I was up at midnight and nobody had called my name. I went to sleep and everything felt peaceful. I woke up the sound of someone knocking on my bedroom door. I looked at the clock on my cable box. It was 3 a.m. I assumed it was one of my brothers, and I told them to go away, but the door knob started turning. It wouldn't open because the door was locked, though. I have always slept with my bedroom door open, always, and I definitely wasn't the one who locked it. The knocking, the doorknob rattling went on for what felt like forever. Then it stopped. A few minutes later, I hear what sounds like scratching on the door. I think to myself, what the fuck? Is this my cat? But then the knocking, scratching, turning of the handle started happening at the exact same time. No way in hell my cat could do all three at once, let alone the knocking and turning the doorknob. It would happen for about 30 seconds, then it would stop. It happened at least five times. Sometimes the knocking would be so hard, it sounded like pounding. My whole door was shaking. Whatever was on the other side of the door really wanted to come in. It got so bad, it woke my dad up. He heard all of the commotion, and as soon as he opened his bedroom door, it all stopped instantly. He called out to me, but I was too afraid to say anything. He went back to his room and closed the door, but the same scenario repeated three more times. 
My dad made me sleep in his room. We never spoke about it, ever. Things seemed to be fine for a while. Then, whatever was in my house struck again. My brother had gotten up to go to the bathroom. He turned the hallway light on, noticed my bedroom door was closed as it was across the hall from his bedroom. He comes out of the bathroom and the hallway light is off and my bedroom door was wide open. He looked inside my room and saw me sleeping. Everyone else in the house was sleeping. He woke my dad and brother and told them what had happened and they searched the house for the possible intruder but found nothing. More months go by and we all are awoken by our smoke detector going off in the middle of the night. We all go downstairs in a panic just to find out that our stove was on. Full blast, big ass flames on top of the stove in the middle of the night. What the fuck? One day, it was just my father and I. My mom was at work as usual, my oldest brother was at work, and my other brother was at a baseball practice. I'm downstairs, but I hear what sounded like somebody running upstairs. Forgetting that both of my brothers aren't home, I go to the stairs and see someone running into my brother's room and slam the door. It was loud. I thought for sure it was my brother and I wanted to go there and see what, what he was up to and why he would be running around like that. I opened the door and nobody was in there. I watched the door close right in front of me. I felt sick to my stomach just standing there, realizing the only other person that was home was me and my father who was in the shower. I continued to see weird shit all the time. One day in the middle of the day, I saw my German shepherd run upstairs full blast as if she was chasing something, but I didn't see what she was chasing. Whatever it was went under the bed and she was viciously growling at it. I thought it was my cat until I saw him sitting on the top of the bed who appeared to be sleeping until we bursted in. One night, my cousin was spending the night. We were walking through the living room when she saw the reflection of another person in the glass of our big bookcase. Another time, we were in the backyard and she told me that she saw somebody looking at us through the window on the few occasions and it definitely wasn't anybody we knew. My brothers almost never had friends over, so that was not a possibility. I remember one day I was walking down the basement stairs when I got to the bottom of the stairs, I saw something. Except it looked exactly like my oldest brother, but it didn't also look human. It was almost white and blue and its eyes were pure black. When he saw me, his eyes got really big and he looked terrified and ran away and went into the crawl space. I ran my ass up those stairs to find out my brother wasn't even home. I never went back down there after that. A few months later, I was with the same brother and we were in the living room watching George Lopez late night. I'm looking into the show and he muted the TV. He looked at me and said, did you hear that? I told him no and I didn't hear anything. We sat still for a minute, then I heard it. Together we both heard footsteps coming up the basement stairs. My brother grabbed a baseball bat and we went to the basement to investigate, but nothing. The rest of our family was sleeping upstairs. The next night, my mom was up late at night, sitting in the dining room table doing whatever it was she was doing. Around 3 a.m., the shelf in the dining room wall flew off the wall and put a hole in the wall that was adjacent to it. 
We looked at the nails in the wall that held it up the shelf, and they were still perfectly straight. We moved out of that house when I was 12. I still experienced paranormal things, but not anything that comes close to what we dealt with in that house. I believe there were a lot of spirits there, and I'd love to know about what happened there previously to cause so much activity. We were a regular church-going family, so I'm sure there were loads of demonic things there just to piss us off even more. What do you think it could have been? Ghosts? Demons? Polstergeists? All of the above? What's your story? Alright you guys, and that concludes today's episode. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. And again, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please give the podcast a five-star review. It really helps it out. Thank you all and talk to you all next episode.